Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, go out into the world and proclaim the good news. But today, there are still more than 2 billion people who have yet to hear the hope of the gospel. Since 1933, BlackRock Church has been urgent in reaching out with the proclamation of the gospel to those who have yet to hear it. Working with over 86 global partners, serving in 33 different countries, reaching over 10 million people. Today, we are most active in the 1040 window, the rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, home to some of the largest unreached people groups, forbidden to hear the gospel. So we will remain steadfast with Jesus' proclamation until all have heard the gospel. Hey, BlackRock, we are excited to have you here this Sunday as part of Missions Conference. It is a different Missions Conference with it being in the summer and you watching online, but we're excited to have you here. And uh, I also would just say it's weird that I'm sitting in a seat and not Larry Fullerton. Uh, you will hear from him next week. Uh, but today you have a special opportunity to hear uh, from some of our global partners. And what I love about today is this is not just a speaker. You got to hear uh, a story of how the Browns uh, were called to the missions field and what their uh, ministry has been like in a very unique uh, area. And so you're in for a treat this morning. And just want to thank you for being a part of a church that uh, supports 86 uh, global partners in 33 countries that impacts millions and millions of people. You are a part of that. And so I hope that you're encouraged, inspired uh, this morning. And so John and uh, Valerie, thank you for uh, joining us and being a part of what we're doing as a church. And uh, kind of as we go through this, we'd love just to hear your story, how God has worked in your, your guys' life, and uh, what uh, the missions field has been like for you. And so, John, I know you grew up at this church, uh, but then God kind of inspired your family to, uh, while you were, were a young child, teenager, to go into the missions field. What, what's that story like? Well, that's a really neat story. Uh, first of all, thanks for having us. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, but that story goes way back into the 1960s. Uh, my uh, father was working with the youth group here at, at Black Rock, and he got to know a guy named Don Borgman. Remember, they were good friends. And uh, Don Borgman was inspired by the Jim Elliott and Eight Saint story and wanted to go down and, and be a missionary looking for these unreached people groups in Brazil. And so I grew up praying, you know, as, a, as far back as I can remember, praying for Don Borgman and his children that were about our age and some of the Anamami children that were our age as well. Uh, so that was how we first were introduced to, to the mission field. And uh, when I was about six years old, uh, my parents uh, were, were praying for Don Borgman. And uh, my dad had told Don when he left, if you ever need any help, you know, I'll be right down there because he loves the outdoors, he loved fishing, he loved hunting and all those sorts of things. He thought the jungle would be really interesting. But uh, he uh, never felt like he was qualified to go. But then one day he opened up a missions magazine and there was a description of him perfectly. Someone who loves the outdoors, mechanically inclined, good with your hands, we need your help. And he was scared to death. You know, he's like, this is me. And my wife, you know, we're here in Connecticut, what am I gonna do? And he held off for about a month or two 
before he broke the news to my mother. My mother said, I've been praying because I felt the calling three months ago. And so we went off to Brazil as, uh, for, as missionaries and uh, packed up lock, stock, and barrel, and we're in Brazil. But unfortunately, we couldn't get tourist visas or get uh, permanent visas. So in two years, we were back here in Connecticut. And, uh, uh, but that really gave us an insight into the necessity there in the jungle of people living uh, completely off-grid in the jungle without God without any opportunity to hear about the Word of God. So that was just the beginning. So then uh, you grow up, your brothers grow up. What's the story of the three of you and all of you entering kind of to be missionaries? Well, we kind of got to see, you know, what life could be like, you know, totally sold out for God. And that was kind of exciting. All three of us had a, a desire to pursue missions um, but unfortunately, you know, Brazil was still a very difficult country to get into as, as missionaries. So as my brothers were graduating from college, uh, they wanted to go back and, and see if that was a possibility. They wanted to make a six-month visit there and see, explore whether they could be missionaries in Brazil among the Anamami. Um, however, the, the visa situation was very difficult. There was uh, pretty much no way you could get a visa as a religious worker in an indigenous area in Brazil. Uh, and at the same time, through a whole long series of coincidences, we had a, a foreign exchange student say, staying with us named Marcos from Brazil. And we were sitting around the dining room table one night, you know, uh, stuffing envelopes with a, this prayer, re, prayer letter, talking about this trip and the, the difficulties that they'd encounter trying to get the paperwork to go uh, into the indigenous areas. And this kid flips open the letter and he says, Oh, what is this you want prayer to go into the indigenous areas? He, you know, he didn't really understand the evangelical uh, mindset very much, but you know, he knew about prayer. And he's like, you want prayer to go into the indigenous area? You want people to pray for that? And we're like, yeah. And we started to explain. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. My father is the president of the Indian Protection Agency. If you want to go there, just I'll give the word and he'll fly you in on one of his planes. And I was just, we were just shocked. We were, <laughs> we were, uh, we had no idea. We knew he was affluent and that you know, his parents were involved in government, but we had no idea what they did. And, uh, and through that contact, both my brothers were able to get their permanent visas uh, with their families and were able to go down to Brazil. So that was uh, one of the really neat things, seeing God working in a really dramatic way. So. And then when did you head to Brazil and how did God kind of prepare you for, for that? Well... I was interested in mission aviation. I studied at Letourneau, and uh, I was paying for my college, doing construction work. I worked for a contractor. I also worked for Steve's office systems. I was, you know, did a few summers repairing office machinery and those kinds of things. Uh, so by the time I graduated, first of all, I was running out of money, so I never finished the flight program. And I kind of discovered I couldn't sit that long in an airplane or six hours at a time. So I kind of got away from the flight I still had my mechanics courses. And uh, when I graduated, I was just like, what on earth? this is the most mixed up resume I've ever seen. I don't know what, I'll, what I can do with this in my life. Um, but uh, I went down to Brazil I, right after college. It, didn't, uh, there was, it was really shut down at that point with the political situation. Visas for anybody were pretty much impossible. So a little bit discouraged. I spent another 10 years paying off my college loans, doing more construction work. And uh, finally, a second trip down to Brazil, 
Uh, I went in there, I helped build a school, I helped build a, a house for another missionary. And the director, the field director there at the mission came and said to me, uh, I don't know if you'll be able to make it here, but it looks like you enjoy life out here in the sticks. And you're, you're pretty good at this. If you're interested, come on down. And so I started that process and it was still looking impossible. Um, but in language school, I just happened to meet this wonderful young lady who is a Brazilian, uh, a Brazilian English background. And, uh, you know, Americans do marry for, for green cards too, you know, it's not just the other way around. So. <laughs> uh, that was uh, also another hand of God, a long story how that all worked out too, but uh, it's, it was pretty neat. So Valerie, tell us a little about your story and then did you ever think that you would marry a missionary and head into the jungles of Brazil? Well, I grew up, was born and raised in Brazil, um, grew up in a, a big city. My mom was a doctor, my dad had his own company, and my grandparents had been missionaries, and I was very involved in my church, but I never thought about mission work, much less jungle mission work, until this crazy guy came into my life. I was teaching English at the school where he was studying Portuguese, and he was going to our church and we were going out with the young people at church as a group and he became interested in me but at first I was like jungle missionary no way but I guess I, I couldn't help falling in love and he was very wise in saying that if we got married his vows would be to me and not to the mission and if I couldn't make it in the jungle, we could try something else. Well, since option two was Russia, I decided that the jungle was just fine. It was wonderful because I really don't like the cold. So it's been 16 years and I really enjoy it now. So you guys are mentioning these words. What does it mean to live in the jungle, to, to go to a place where most of us would never even think of? So tell me just, a little bit about what it means to live in a jungle. Well, when we say jungle, we really, really mean the jungle, like a National Geographic picture of a forest, and we fly an hour and a half from the nearest city into the jungle. For an American, it would be like going to Alaska and from Anchorage, getting a small plane and flying to work with the Inuits, but except instead of cold, being really, really hot. So it's an enormous jungle, this little clearing airstrip. There's, they live in thatched huts, and we have a house with aluminum roofing, and it's comfortable considering it's the middle of the jungle, but it's quite um, remote. There's no internet, there's no roads, there's no telephones, there's um, no stores, everything has to be flown into us, so it's very primitive or remote, off-grid. So John, in 2005, you guys go to uh, your first kind of village where you have some other kind of missionaries that you're working with. What was the work that you guys were doing? What primarily did you do uh, in those first couple years? Well, the very first thing we had to do was learn the language, which was a, the, the mission asked us to spend six months doing intensive language study, eight hours a day. Uh, so that was a challenge for uh, for me, who's not a, a great student, not, I don't love school, but uh, yeah, I love going out with the guys on weekends, I'd go hunting or that would count. I'd, uh, there's another four hours I just checked off as walked in the woods for 
four hours out saying a word, but spent time with the people. So um, that was the beginning, uh, studying the language, learning how to live in the jungle, uh, how to do our requisitions to get our food. It was kind of complicated. Um, and then uh, shortly after that, uh, the nurse that worked there, we were in charge of the healthcare. Uh, our mission was doing a lot of the healthcare. We were the only contact they had with the outside world. So she came and said, uh, uh, I, I'm leaving the field in about six months, so you need to start training in the clinic. And, you know, I'd had basic first aid, but, you know, I was not a doctor. Um, and before you know it, uh, you know, we're there treating, you know, possible pneumonia cases with small children, dysentery, uh, machete fights, we're doing stitchi stitching, uh, stitching up people. And of course, m many of the cases uh, would be flown out to the city to a real hospital if anything was really critical. But we saw, you know, we got to keep the person alive till the plane gets there the next day. So there's some stuff that was really, really uh, scary stuff. Um, and we were also uh, doing a lot of the maintenance work. I was cutting the grass because, you know, I, I wasn't really proficient in language yet. So doing a lot of the, the maintenance type stuff, which I was good at, um, which was actually kind of fun. But uh, it, was a, it was a very stressful uh, beginning there. Um, many, many things going on. So, so you worked there for a couple years, and then you guys move upstream to a village all by yourself. What was that like, kind of leaving a community of other uh, missionaries and then just going to do ministry really with just the two of you? Yeah, that was a, that was a scary experience. Uh, we, we had been making visits up to this village uh, two or three times a year, uh, doing some evangelistic work. Um, also, just making sure they're okay. Uh, some of the healthcare stuff up there as well. Uh, it was uh, myself and another Brazilian colleague of ours who go up the river whenever we could. Um, so I, I, we were getting to know this village, and occasionally they come down and visit us. And it was very interesting dynamic in the Yanomami culture, because when we were visiting them, we were the guests, and they were very generous with us, very kind and appreciative that we arrived and and uh, would bring us food and things like that, uh, which was kind of exciting for me to see. They were very interested in hearing Bible stories and things like that, so that was really good. But when they would come down to visit us in Padamiu, they were the visitors, and the Yanomami cultures expected that we would just give them everything. Um, and uh, so Valerie got to see this other side of them, which was gimme, 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 and, you know, are you... You know, they wouldn't come to church. They wouldn't, you know, because they were a little bit embarrassed that they weren't as dressed as well as the other Indians that had more contact with the outside world. So it was this, you know, she had one vision of what they were like, and I was seeing a different vision of a uh, different aspect of who they were. Um, and finally, they asked us outright. We said, we, we really need somebody to come live with us full time and not just make visits. Um, and... At first, I was skeptical. I was like, you know, why is it that you want uh, missionaries? Do you want, you know, more health care? Do you, do you want more, you want to have a little store here where you can buy fish hooks and T-shirts and things like that? And their response was, no, uh, we've seen what's going on in Padamiu. We've seen how lives are changing, and we want that. We want uh, to be able to learn to read God's Word. We want you to build a school. We want to learn to read. We want to have God's Word here. We want you to teach us. 
So that was really exciting for me. I ran back and told Valerie, and Valerie's like, but those people that just gimme, gimme, gimme all the time, that's where we want to go. So uh, uh, we, we prayed about it, and, and I felt fairly confident that that's where God was leading us, um, and we were on our way. Uh, Valerie. But, <laughs> but you were not as confident in that. So kind of tell, tell us, what, what were your feelings like of going to that new village, your hesitation, and what kind of helped you to actually go? And then what's been the outcome for you? Well, when we first went to the jungle, I was scared because I hadn't dreamed or gone to seminary thinking about being a jungle missionary. But I felt that I really wanted to marry this man and go to jungle. But when he wanted to, after 10 years of being in Padamu, and he had the idea of going deeper into the jungle, it was hard. And I the visitors weren't very nice to me when they came and they, it didn't seem they were in, really interested to me in the word of God. So I really wanted God to give me a feeling that that was his will. And I would pray about it and I would meditate on it and just wait for that, was waiting for that feeling, but it never came. So at some point, I just decided that I had to go as in faith and in obedience um, it seemed like a logical next step. The village where we were had missionaries, the other one didn't. Um, there was a colleague doing trips, but no one living there full time. And so I just went. And it's amazing how I, I think that's what God wanted of me at that time, for me to go even though my feelings weren't um, what I wanted them to be. And we've been there for about four years, and I love it so much. I feel a lot more connected to the people in this new village. I love the work in the school. About over half the village comes to the school. It's a really good time that I have to get to know them. So, Valerie, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the anemone and their belief system? How does that differ than what we talk about in America with even specific kind of Christian words and things like that? Well, the Yanomami are considered Stone Age hunter-gatherers, semi-nomadic. In the anthropology world, they're one of the most famous for still being pure, um, unaccultured, or they have their own culture, but not influenced that much by outside culture. And they're animists. So to them, they're these animal spirits. There's the jaguar spirit, and there's the monkey spirit, and they're all of these spirits they're not necessarily really good or really bad. They're mostly bad, um, but they can be manipulated. They can be manipulated into um, helping me and doing evil to my enemies. So when we present God, we have to be very clear that this is God, the creator, completely different. And he is all powerful, all good, all knowing, just, loving. He's very different than what they're accustomed. And he is not there to be manipulated and just to give me stuff and attack other people. So it's a whole new concept. Um, in the Bible translation process, which is not something that I participate in directly, I teach people to read so that they can read the Word of God. But it's a fascinating um, work because you have to find ways to express things that aren't necessarily in the language ready to be used. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the word for Savior is the yanker. Jesus is our yanker because he yanks us from sin. And there are no words for thank you. In that case, they just 
borrowed it from Portuguese, obrigado. So various things are used to um, present the word of God. Awesome. So, so John, wh what are the, some of the ways that we're seeing that the gospel is being able to impact those that you're working with? When the first group of, of, of Yanomami started to accept the word of God, we started to see a change in their lives that was phenomenal. At first, their, their relatives were saying, you can't accept the word of God. You'll no longer be Yanomami. You'll no longer be human because uh, that's essentially what the word Yanomami means. Uh, they said, you're going to starve to death. You're going to, no one will help you if you don't make alcohol to pay them to come work in the fields. You're going to be scrawny and alone and die in the jungle. And, uh, but they said, no, this is, we want that forgiveness. We want the slate wiped clean. We don't want to have this, uh, the things, the bad things in our heart anymore. So they accept the word of God, a handful of, I think it was four men and their wives, which was key. Uh, at the beginning, and lo and behold, they weren't drinking their fields anymore. That's what they're making alcohol out of the same thing they make bread out of. Um, instead of, you know, being afraid to go out fishing or hunting from the evil spirits, they were they were courageous. And in a matter of a short, very short period of time, they were the stockiest, strongest people in the village. And people were like shocked. <laughs> mm. You know, they were thriving. Uh, God was watching out for them. They were prosperous. Our village had been mooring with another village for many years. We don't know how many, but eventually they decided one of the main factors in deciding to make peace was the gospel. So they traveled over there and made first peaceful contact. And then that village came to our village to visit and they left behind Zacharias. Uh, he was probably around 10 or 12. He, they don't have birth certificates, we're not sure. And he was left behind to go to school. And this village was not interested in the word of God. They told our people in our village, oh, get everything you can from the missionaries, but don't listen to their talk. Except for Zacharias. He would come to church and he would sit in the first bench and just listen to everything John was saying. And at school, when I would do the Bible introduction every day, he would have 100% concentration. And I was really fond of him. And it, I was wondering if maybe he was the only one in his village that's interested in learning. Or maybe he, in the future, he would bring his, uh, his people the word of God. Well, his father came to visit a couple months later, and he told me he would not be going back to his village with his father. He really wanted to continue studying. But the next day, his father took him away. And I don't know where Zacharias is. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. But I don't have to worry about that because God does. Mm -hmm. God loves him. Amen. So, Valerie, tell me also, what, what is it like raising three kids in the jungle. Raising kids in the jungle is a lot of work, a lot of fun, and a lot of challenges, uh, but kind of like everywhere. So our challenges are unique. Some, some of them, not all of them, are unique, but they're not necessarily harder than yours. Um, but I think sometimes the enemy wants to make us think that, that our challenges are harder just to make, try and make us depressed. But a lot of the time, it's, it's a lot of fun. There's the river we go swimming in every day. There's a lot of 
of freedoms in some areas. It's a lot of fun for boys, a lot of fishing and running around the jungle. They do get to miss out in a couple, you know, really cool birthday parties in town video and video games. As they grow up, they're noticing that more and more. Olaf is 14, Bobby is 10, and Evelyn is 6. Uh, homeschool is becoming a little bit more challenging as they get older, but also we're learning a lot of history and a lot of other things that um, escaped maybe when I was in school. So John, tell me about uh, BlackRock and our support uh, of you and how uh, us as a church, uh, what missions does and what, what that allows you to do um, on the missions field. First of all, I, I really love to thank BlackRock for supporting us, uh, prayer support and just the, knowing that there's people here behind us that we're not out there on our own in the middle of the jungle with no support, uh, no one thinking about us, no one praying about us. Uh, it's phenomenal to have that. Uh, the prayer support is critical. We know when people are praying. I mean, we have things that just should not happen falling into place, uh, the hand of God working in different ways. And one a great example was when a gal from BlackRock came down, Bonnie, she came down to visit us. And we knew a little about it. She, she had, was working as a nurse and she came to visit us. And I, at the time, was alone, uh, the only man on the post that was working in the clinic. And that week was just one horrific case after the other. Uh, we had a boy that came in the morning and you know, the father said he's got diarrhea and he threw up last night. So we gave him a simple, you know, a little bit of rehydration fluid and, and some medication for that. And there was so many, I think there was a machete fight that week as well, that day we were dealing with. And at lunchtime, mm -hmm. the father came back and says, I think my son has stopped breathing. And we were just like, oh no. Well, as it turns out, this gal had 14 years of experience in an ER. And we, you know, they come in with this child. We couldn't find a pulse. We couldn't find anything. She comes in, and she managed to get an IV into a kid whose heart was pretty much stopped. It was just fluttering the tiniest bit. And that boy was brought back from the brink because she was there. Um, the machete fight, the, there was a, a problem with a, a birth that week. There was all kinds of stuff. She must have saved five or six lives that week. And she thought we were like living like this all the time. She's like, I don't know how you do it. And I was like, we don't. This is only, you know, we're just so thankful that you were here this week when all this hit the fan. It was just a, a mess. But, uh, you know, God was good and provided that help that I needed at that week. Um, so, and also, you know, life in the jungle is not uh, cheap. We go an hour and a half on a plane to get there. Um, one of the times when we were buying medicine back in those days when we were doing all the health care, one little shoebox of medicine was $1,000. Um, so the financial support has been uh, wonderful as well. Uh, we would not be able to do our ministry without... Uh, this is not the kind of place where you can do tent maker missions. You can't have a job. There's, there's no economy there. Uh, they don't deal with money. So um, we, we really appreciate uh, the support that you guys give us. So what's one, one way as you guys uh, this summer go back that we can be praying for you, but maybe also is there some people that we can specifically as a church be praying for uh, that uh, you just you can't, see what, can't wait to see what God does in, in their lives? All right. Uh, one of our people that's being trained in the new village of Boudou is Kopi. 
Uh, he's working in the school and really interested in the Word of God. Um, he's growing in his faith. Uh, this past Christmas, he did the, uh, the communion service and kind of an evangelical, evangelistic message about Christmas. Did a phenomenal job. So that's one of the guys that we, we really want prayer for, that he would continue growing his faith. Uh, Cassis is, uh, works also in the school. And uh, he uh, is more of a community leader. Uh, he needs prayer. Um, the getting back into the jungle is a serious issue that needs prayer right now. They're, Brazil is still on the upsweep with the coronavirus thing going on, and we may have difficulty getting back into the jungle because of that, all the shutdowns that are going on. They're, Brazil is going through all the same stuff we were going through a couple months ago. Uh, political situation nearly identical, only lots more political parties in Brazil, so it's kind of crazy. So keep us in prayer. Well, John and Valerie, thank you so much for spending some time today uh, just telling us about your ministry, about your heart and your story. And I know that as a church that uh, we get excited about this, and this is our opportunity to partner uh, with you. And I can't wait when you come back in a couple years uh, from being in the, in the jungle, what stories you will have to tell about uh, how the gospel has gone forth and how uh, God has used you and uh, your family in that. So BlackRock, you've heard this amazing story of the Browns and how God is using them in the jungle to bring the gospel and both the highs and the lows of that, but also we get the opportunity to partner with them. And so I hope that you will not just sit in the sideline and say, that's a great story of the Browns and, and I'm excited for them, but you have a part and your part is through our faith promise of going, of giving, and of praying. And so I hope that today you will see how you can be a part of that and you can take your first or maybe your fifth step in our faith promise. Now, because of COVID, we can't go anywhere. But if you're interested in thinking about being a global partner and saying, hey, I want to maybe go for a couple months or maybe a year or two, I would love to hear from you. So just send uh, me an email uh, this week, and I'd love to connect with you about the possibility of you being called uh, to the missions field. And then to give, uh, you can go to brc.church slash give to give a faith promise. And the faith promise is your commitment to saying, I will uh, support financially what we're doing as a church when it comes to missions and bring the gospel to the world through our uh, 86 global partners in 33 countries reaching millions of people. Your daily, weekly, monthly giving to our faith promise allows us to do that. And so please go uh, there and fill out your faith promise today. And then lastly, and they talked about it, uh, is our opportunity to pray. We need you to pray each and every day to commit to praying for a global partner somewhere around the world as they do ministry, that your prayers and the way that you support our global partners makes all the difference in their work. And so today, please go to brc.church slash I will pray to sign up to be a prayer partner. And you don't have to know a, a, a partner's name. You just select maybe a topic that they uh, do ministry in or maybe a continent that you're interested in. But go there today, sign up for that, and then we will send you 
uh, some information about how to pray. And if it's your first time signing up to pray for a global partner, we have a free book that we want to give you, how you can start praying for your your missionaries. And so this is a free gift that we want to give to you if this is your first time praying uh, to be a global partner. If you've been praying for many years and you feel left out uh, because you don't get a book, just email me and I will gladly send one also to you. Uh, But we want to encourage you today to sign up to be a, uh, a prayer partner. And so thank you, church, for being a part of what we're doing. Thank you for uh, your involvement, whether you're going to sign up today to, for the first time to be part of Faith Promise, or if you've been doing this for 50 years. Uh, it, is, it is exciting to be a part of what we're doing and how almost a f- one-fourth of our budget uh, goes to uh, global missions, bringing the gospel to the two billion people who have never heard that before. Hi, friends. Thanks for participating today. You know what? I have a hunch about you. My hunch is that you tuned in to this missions event because you love Jesus and you know how important missions is to him. You know Jesus is passionate that people who have not heard of his love get the same opportunity to hear that you did and I did. And if my hunch is correct, you understand that reaching the some two billion people on earth today who have no access to the gospel is vitally important to Jesus. And the fact that you understand this is great. But understanding is not enough. It is not enough to just be well-informed about Jesus' command to bring his love to the world. Because Jesus' command to followers like us is not to be informed, it is to be involved. And as his follower, Jesus calls me and you to get involved in his worldwide mission, not just be informed about it. Which brings me to what we call our faith promise at BlackRock. Each year we call every BlackRock attender to get involved in bringing the gospel to the world in at least two ways. The first call is to get involved with a financial faith promise in the form of a one-year financial pledge. And second, we're calling every BlackRock attender to get involved with a prayer support faith promise by being willing to pray for at least one of our global partners. Here's how to make a faith promise. It's all electronic now. There's no faith promise card this year. It's all electronic. So if you're willing to pray, go to brc.church slash I will pray. And there you can make a faith promise to pray over the course of one year for at least one of our BlackRock global partners. Then there's the financial involvement. Again, there's no faith promise card. So to make a financial faith promise, go to brc.church slash I will give. And there you can make your one year pledge to support God's work through BlackRock around the globe. If you made a pledge last year, thank you. But please, we need you to do it again this year. If you're married, I strongly recommend that you consider making a joint financial faith promise after talking and praying about it with your spouse. But don't procrastinate. This is way too important to put on the family back burner. Every Christ follower at BlackRock should make a faith promise because loving God, loving people, and serving our world is what we do. It is what we all do at BlackRock. This is not just for some of us. We want everybody at BlackRock to be both informed 
and involved in the most important thing happening on this planet, which is seeing lost people like me and you come one by one to an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Thanks.